Yep. All right. I think I got it. We are rolling. Uh, hey, everyone. I am joined today by Dr. Sophia Basadua Sun. Uh, she is an academic researcher studying um, some interesting aspects of communication, which I won't presume to uh, detail. I'll let Sophia do that. Um, and uh, how's it going? Thanks for joining me. Good. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So do you want me to just I, say you follow you follow my lead, but you can say whatever whatever comes to mind, whatever you want. Um, so uh, how's everything? How's how's life in New York City amidst the outbreak? What's what's going on up there? Ah, well, um, I do most of my research from home, so it hasn't affected me too profoundly, other than just feeling confined to home rather than. Um, <laughs> being here by choice. Sure. And uh, yeah, I guess it, it affects my research a little bit, but not a lot. And I can talk about that a little bit more later. Mm -hmm. um, my husband is a doctor. So I'm, and then his brother, my brother-in-law is an ER physician. So I feel like kind of always hearing about the outbreak and how intense yeah. it is out there. Um, but not really personally experiencing it beyond just worry, I guess, right. for loved ones. You know, uh, you and and your family and your husband may be a bit more in the thick of it than I am. I haven't left the house. I'm in Pittsburgh, uh, and the the illness hasn't really hit us as hard as it has other metro areas. Um, but I had made the comment yesterday to my, or it was the day before yesterday, to my wife, like, you know, this is all just very bizarre and surreal. Like all of these things are happening outside of what I'm seeing. And I haven't actually paid attention to the news much at all. I rely on my wife to, to tell me what's going on out there in the world. And um, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen like pictures of sick people or overcrowded hospitals, be it in the States or abroad. And it just, it didn't feel real to me. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm presuming it's, it feels much more real to you uh, than perhaps some others because you're surrounded by it, figuratively and literally. Yeah, I mean, yes and no, I guess, because, I mean, everything about life has changed in the sense mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, everything and nothing has changed. New York is famous for um, everybody orders takeout and has it delivered to their home. So in that right. sense, you think like, yeah, it's set up to stay home all the time. And that's easy. But then, you know, like Chinese restaurants are disappearing, for example. There's like a very right. famous... Um, I don't know how old it is, but Jing Fong, it's a dim sum restaurant that's just out of business now, I think. Um, so that's crazy. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you can't go outside if we like right. try to go for walks in the park. I mean, it's impossible to social distance here, it feels like. And uh, then I hear, you know, I hear all the stories going on, I guess, down at the ER that my brother-in-law works in. And it mm -hmm. sounds just like pandemonium. They don't have enough masks. Wow. Um, yeah, he's always encouraging people just like if you aren't in an emergency, like stay away from the ER because you don't want to run the risk of catching it, thinking that you already have it. There's just so many negative consequences to that. And like mm. he had a he he had a patient spit at him one day, which is like crazy. That's you know, wow. that's basically like that's like a death sentence if that person had actually had COVID. So it's just Wow. Like I I don't envy him his right. job <laughs> but wow but yeah, he's very good humored about it well um, I, I i guess you have to be in a situation like that so um mm -hmm. 
so you're you're grounded at home. Your your yeah. your life isn't even really disrupted that much, um, or your work necessarily, since you say you do it from home. Let let's talk about uh, let's talk a little bit about your background and and the work that you're doing. So um, you're a PhD, so you've yeah. spent some time in higher ed and and in schooling and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk about? Uh, the degrees that you have and how you found the, the, the track for you um, and where you decided to go to school and what majors, et cetera. All right. Yeah. So um, I guess I did my bachelor's degree in English literature and I started at a little school called Oxford of Emory, which is a part like a satellite school of Emory university. Um, and then I switched to an English department. So I started, I wanted to be a creative writer. Um, and that's how I began uh, for the first two years. And then I left Emory because of the economic crisis <laughs> and right. went to a local school, Armstrong Atlantic State University. And that was a really good time to kind of rethink halfway through undergrad um, exactly what I wanted to major in. They had a creative writing major at Armstrong, but I was becoming more interested in literature and studying that academically. So I ended up deciding to shift to um, English literature. And then mm-hmm. I applied to master's and PhD programs. I got into one at Clemson University, which I applied to because my one of my favorite um, undergrad professors had gotten her master's there. <laughs> so I was very pleased to get a funded master's. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I got in there and I got into UGA, University of Georgia, but they didn't offer funding for master's students. So that was easy, an easy choice. I went to Clemson mm-hmm. for English literature. Um, and then I, after, I guess you kind of start thinking about the PhD a year into a two-year master's program. Um, and so I started applying to PhD programs in English and I was really planning on doing that. Um, but my advisor, my thesis advisor, had gotten her degree in the comparative literature department at Stony Brook. And I really didn't know what comparative literature was, but I took her advice that I should apply there because she thought it was a good fit for the kind of research I was doing. I was writing about cosmopolitanism um, at the time, which is a much better fit for comparative literature. And so I applied, they accepted me. I got, I also got into an English department in, um, Florida is it I always forget is it University of Miami I think that's that's the one in Florida and then Miami University is in Ohio so I got into the one in Florida and uh but Stony Brook offered me a fellowship um which meant I would have a lot of protective research time so I took that and went up to comparative literature still with a very vague idea of what the field was and uh yeah spent the next six years studying um, three different, I guess, language traditions, which mm. were, uh, I looked at literature from Buenos Aires, New York, and Paris. Um, so literature in French, Spanish, and English. Yeah. So, uh, what is, uh, comparative literature? Oh, that's so hard. You know, I actually, I have a blog post on my website about this and it's it, most comparatists even don't really know how to describe it. I would say that we are, Basically, we emerge out of a conundrum, which is that most um, literature study has either been studying a national tradition or now a language tradition. So you have Spanish, English, French, mm-hmm. but these 
um, departments don't really communicate with each other necessarily. So comparative literature emerged out of that to be the kind of discipline where um, you could talk about the relationship between literature ac across linguistic and national barriers. But it then evolved into being kind of the seat of theory or literary methods. Um, and so it kind of has that like dual background and it's also spawned a lot of different fields like film studies, cultural studies, uh, translation studies. So it's, I think of it as kind of like a, just a good training ground for yeah. anyone who wants to develop their knowledge of kind of literary studies. Cool. Um, that is, that's actually interesting to me. Um, and I'll have to read the blog post because I know less than anyone about it. Um, but uh, it, it, you used another word that uh, I wanted to, to pick your brain on, and that was uh, metropolitanism. What is that? Mm -hmm. Ah, all right. Yeah, that's my research specialty. Yeah. Um, so basically what I do is called urban literary studies, which is literary, kind of a larger field where literary scholars look at um, representations of cities in literature. So how, how does literature talk about uh, urban space? And um, I developed this, I guess, kind of interdisciplinary approach to thinking about urban literature through the framework of the metropolis as it kind of pervades three fields, post-colonial, urban, um, and literary studies, or actually you could even broaden that to the urban humanities. Um, mm -hmm. to basically following in the footsteps of post-colonial and decolonial scholars to think about what is the relationship between urban centers and um, regions, nations, and colonies. So how, how is the urban, in decolonial terms, how is the urban always kind of constituted by colonialism in some way? So that mm -hmm. for me is what thinking about the metropolis is, is thinking about that relationship between an urban space and its exterior that it relies on. Okay, could you give me uh, a contemporary example of how your, of, or even just what your research is specifically with regards to that? Um, are you focusing on any contemporary examples or is this more of a historical context or? I look at the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th century. Um, there, that's a good question. Um, and there are so many ways to answer it, of course, <laughs> trying to settle on one. You know what sure. I was really interested in recently is, um, you know, the series Westworld, the HBO yes. series. Um, so, you know how they're currently, the third season is set, well, it's kind of unclear where it's set, if it's set in the real world or if it's set in maybe future world, which could be mm -hmm. a simulation. Um, and so in the preview for that, right, they referred to this urban kind of world as a metropolis, which I thought was really interesting given the relationship that's already being set up between this idea of the real world, this uh, sort of advanced urban civilization um, in conflict with Westworld, which in all of its different iterations throughout season two, basically are just different colonial situations, whether it's the settler colonialism of Westworld, the mm -hmm. um, Raj world as British imperialism, or even um, they had a samurai world, which is less clearly or literally colonial, but um, 
is imperial in the sense that you have this kind of Western viewpoint of the sure. urban civilization and coming in and kind of like touring this uh, fetishization of Japanese culture. So um, I think that's, you know, one place where we can already begin to see this kind of question of urban an urban Western center in relation to a rural colonial world. Um, and that is kind of what I'm interested in versus something like urban studies will have a tendency of, or any kind of study of urbanism, even in literature, will have a tendency of staying within the inner workings of the city. Mm-hmm. And the question that I really want to ask is how does, is to get out of the city and into how the city affects or relies upon the world around it. So. Interesting. Okay, so that that is something that I think is uh, very relatable uh, in, in the most comprehensive sort of way. I mean, uh, it's the I, I it feels gestalt to me in some respects. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the different parts that affect the whole? So um, I'm interested in in hearing more of this. So uh, elaborate. <laughs> 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 so, uh, all right. So, looking at how the the city affects what is beyond its perimeter, um, and the relationships contained therein. Uh, what is? Uh, I would say, here's a here's a good question for you. What are the most prof- What is the or one of the most profound things you learned through this pursuit through this area of study? in relation to that? Um, hmm. I think probably for me, the thing that was biggest discovery was looking at decolonial studies as a field, which um, Mm. emerges out of Latin American uh, research, really looking at um, how Latin America is different from say more modern uh, colonial formations. And so one of the things that they do is they take Emmanuel Wallerstein's um, world systems analysis and adapt it to think about how the modern world began emerging with essentially the voyages of Christopher Columbus and the emergence Mm. of um, that first kind of modern Western empire, even though we wouldn't normally think of the Spanish empire as being particularly modern, but a lot of stuff starts kind of coming to fruition at that moment that then reaches its height in the 19th century. Um, so I found that really fascinating. And I think the most interesting element of that for me is if many urban scholars kind of date city history to the 19th century and Parisian um, urbanization and Osmanization, um, Latin Americanists really demonstrate how urban planning began or was tested in colonial Latin America. And I think that's just a completely paradigm shifting understanding of how urbanism functions and where it came from and the way that we understand it today. Now, do you think that, so so urbanism and urban planning, do you think some of the, the principles that, that were utilized in the past uh, for building communities in, in this respect uh, are continued to, to today? And then what, is, what does that maybe look like 10 or 20 years in the future? Is there any sort of roadmap that you can predict based on what you've researched? 
Mm, that's a good question. I don't think that there's really a roadmap in the sense that um, there's a lot of like urban studies works that try to predict what the future is going to be. The one that stands out to me is um, Edward Soha's Post Metropolis, where he theorized mm. that the future of cities was decentralization. And basically the idea was kind of like a postmodern um, metropolis so that you have uh I mean, it's what it sounds like everything is decentralized. Instead of having one centralized city, different industries are broken up into other areas and there's no sort of mm -hmm. coherent center, um, which is very definitely engaged with kind of postmodernism and that like that moment in history. But many people have critiqued him for being for his example city, L.A. And like, yes, that fit kind of the idea of a postmodern city very well, but how mm -hmm. does that really apply to the rest of the globe? And I think that's kind of an interesting question in terms of what urbanism is, is that it's different from place to place um, and really just kind of depends on, I guess, what's most useful in that particular location and to their industries. Um, we are living in what people call the urban age. So uh, the UN has declared that over half over half the population, I think, is living in urban um, areas right now. But what gets defined as urban is not necessarily what is not necessarily a city. Mm -hmm. So, in the classic sense, so I guess in that sense, the prediction is that urbanization is going to continue to become a more and more prominent part of global society, regardless. Sure. Um, uh, Okay, so I went straight for the future. Uh, <laughs> I forgot what the rest no, of the question was. No, that's that's totally fine. Uh, I mean, we're we're seeing that now with you know with most most people really living on the east and west coasts of the country, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's especially prevalent when it comes to politics and and especially voting. Um, you get to see where the, the urban centers are on both coasts. And just the the densities of population on on those respective coasts, but um, seeing just the the dynamics between how these large urban centers, the coast basically, are mm. affected by the center where there's less people, um, and I've always found that to be of an interesting relationship because intuitively like logically it, it shouldn't work like that necessarily and and that's all by design that's completely a, a constructed model right so that that's what that that reminds me of in specific uh so when you think about you know the those urban centers along the coast affecting everything else uh it it feels like the the farther you move out, the more that there's this kind of resentment. <laughs> in some respects, it's like, yeah, I don't. I, I'm in Kansas, and I don't need someone from California basically defining these things for me. Um, it, it's fascinating, and and I don't know if I'm still talking about the same thing that you are, or even if it's adjacent. But uh, nevertheless, I I digress. Yeah. Well, I think it's. Um... Yeah, what you're getting into is kind of the divide between national imaginary versus urban imaginary. And right. um, I would say in the 90s, especially, there was this kind of movement um, towards thinking that urban centers were going to be the um, 
the nodes. So Saskia Sassen has a great book called the uh, called Global Cities, which is a must read for anyone who wants to study urbanism, um, where she basically proposes that the new paradigm is, is that urban centers are the material nodes through which global capitalism is uh, mediated. That mm-hmm. globalization is not a, is too abstract. You know, there has to be a material location where it takes place. And so the cities she chooses are New York, Tokyo, and London. Um, and but I think what's kind of interesting about that is that then there's been this swing back towards nationalism lately, and I see that being there's something similar I think that happened um, at the turn of the last century, right up until like the 1920s. There was this mm-hmm. kind of we're living in a they didn't have the word global, so instead it was a world kind of urban age. Um, and then with World War II, you see, and uh, with the economic depressions that were going around going on around the world at the time then you see the shift into fascism and nationalism. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing a very similar kind of um, reactionary swing, I guess, right. in the pendulum between world, the world is mediated through urban centers and kind of a cosmopolitan imaginary versus a kind of national consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that feels very on point with, uh, with kind of, the 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 present time uh mm-hmm. and you know i feel like you know hi- history's repeating itself and mm-hmm. i'm interested to see what you know even five years from now what what does this look like um and that's why i asked about like if there's any predictive nature to to your research because i mean predictive uh or predictions rather are just that they, they aren't necessarily accurate, but at least they can be informed. Um, and it helps you prepare for something. I think in this case, like, you know, I've got a young family. I, I want to know what's going to happen next so I can, I can prepare for whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so I, I like that there's this forecasting kind of element to, uh, your deep research in, in this past. So, uh, switching, switching gears a little bit. So you've gone through, uh, you've got various different, different degrees. They all kind of touch on each other in one way or another. Um, and there's a lot that, that you can do with them. Um, I think my students right now, both in marketing and design, one of the, the common points on the Venn diagram right in the center is this aspect of storytelling right? Mm -hmm. Um, They are all going to be storytellers of some kind. The designers will be visual. The the marketers, they'll be offering written stories, working with designers in tandem to create something new, right? With your background in in English and wanting to, to, or having a talent for writing, um, what do you recommend for, for students that are interested in uh, telling meaningful and poignant stories, or what would what would your process be? Any any insights or recommendations? Oh, that's yeah, that's a that's a big one. Um, well, is there a way to like break that down into maybe more specific components? Sure. So what what in storytelling, I guess, are so, they going to be looking at? 
Well, it, it really depends. So like designers are, they, so graphic designers will be working in advertising agencies where they'll, they'll be creating uh, advertisements, be they print or digital, where they're, you, they're promoting a solution which mm -hmm. implies a need. So when someone sees an ad or a solution to a problem, they imagine themselves like, oh, I need that thing now, I'm going to go buy that thing, right? With marketers, it's similar, but their conversation, they have more of a conversation. Uh, there's more of, a, of an iterative process. So, all right, I'm gonna introduce myself to you, and then I'm going to bring up uh, a specific topic, and then I'm going to elongate that and talk about the different aspects of it. So the, the whole storytelling cycle has multiple parts to it. So, um, and in fairness, like, it's all very research. So that's another layer to add into it. So um, it's not like they're just, you know, writing, just doing uh, this writing just completely off the cuff. It's all very informed. So, um, and, and given your, your initial interest in, in creative writing and your English background, um, that's, that's why I asked. Because the last part would be, I think, is that neither groups of these students are trained writers. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I would say that most marketers aren't trained writers. Um, it's either you're, you're a good writer or you're not. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you're not, you have to go figure it out. So maybe another question there is, um, how did you learn how to write? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe start there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, by reading, of course. Um, I loved reading when I was a kid. And I think, you know, there are better and worse ways to go about it. Nobody necessarily gave me a lot of guidance in terms of what to read. So if sure. I could, I guess, give someone the best possible <laughs> educational advice I would give, I would say, if you want to learn how to be a go or learn how to be a good writer, I would go pick up I just moved right into what I would go do. Um, <laughs> I would go pick up uh, Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast. I think he is someone who writes with so much clarity and simplicity. And he really takes the English language and make, and I think simplicity is kind of the key there. He makes it kind of function in the best way it can with the least number of words or with without being um he takes all the ruffles away right like he's a very modern writer in that sense um well, just down the, to the, the essentials of writing so thank you for bringing that up because um this is something that i don't think a lot of my students are familiar with and even i wasn't familiar with until i was in grad school and that was her hemingway's six word story mm -hmm. uh, you know it I, I actually haven't read that one Oh, well, all right, here, I'll recite it to you. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. And that's it. And the, the whole sort of philosophy behind that is, you know, uh, it's, it, it's, it's flash fiction. So basically, um, you can create multiple different stories or interpretations uh, of said story and it mm -hmm. really creates, uh, it stimulates creativity. So, yeah. um, but, ult but it, from a marketing advertising perspective in my world, what that means is this is as much, this is how you condense a complicated story down to its most basic essentials. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I found uh, some particular interest in, in doing that. So, you know, with my clients, I would have them say like, all right, let's break down your six word story. Nouns, mm-hmm. adjectives, verbs. Pardon me. Too much coffee. <laughs> so let's list all of the nouns that are associated to your product or service that you want to communicate or, you know, interpretations of your, uh, of your products or services on behalf of your, your stakeholders and your clients, different demographics. What are the verbs? What are the adjectives? And then from that, essentially, you make the six-word story, which distills mm-hmm. the, the soul of your company or your product or your service down to its most basic essentials, but ideally in so doing, it also creates a very nuanced and layered sort of narrative. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that, well, what that brings to mind for me is, I think it's a William Carlos Williams poem called The Red Wagon or something, it's like three lines, I think, and it's just a very brief and very to the point poem. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, there are a lot of examples, I, I think, of very brief writing that, one could look at to try to kind of come up with um, a style or a way of communicating. I think one thing that I always try to give my um, students when I have taught writing is a sense of, and I try to give this to my literature students as well, analyze the form that you're reading and the form that you're going to be writing in. So for example, when students write an academic paper, obviously they have the next four years in a after taking a composition class to kind of navigate the academy. But ideally what they would learn in the composition class as well is how to write in the real world. Right. That's, I mean, it's hard to cover all the ways you could write in the real world, but I think that the, the most important thing is to be able to look at different genres, break them down, figure out how they function, um, mm-hmm. and then be able to adapt your style to that. So I might ask my students to look at an academic article, but then also ask them to look at a, magazine article and one thing that happens a lot is that students tend to want to write in second person so you you did this you did that mm-hmm. um not allowed in yeah, <laughs> academic right. writing yep at all but i think where they pick it up is popular culture because that's very common in mm-hmm. magazines so um that tone has a certain authority to it but it's or that i guess point of view has a certain authority but it has to be in the right genre, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't work to write a magazine in a magazine tone for an academic paper for your teacher. So right. I think that that's, that's one thing that I'm always trying to give my students is that sense of don't try to take the rules of one genre, even academic writing, and sort of rigidly apply them in your future mm-hmm. profession. Like, no, my communications professor told me that one is never to use you. (laughs) (laughs) I will not. Um, So trying to stay away from that. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I, in my classes, I I like to incorporate a lot of writing for the exact reason you just said, like it never hurts to get more practice, even if you're a great writer naturally or by, you know, by virtue of learning it. Um, Well, I want to say there is no natural good writer. Um, right. In my opinion, I think it's all completely learned, but some people pick it up because, you know, they just liked reading or mm-hmm. were encouraged to do that. And other people maybe didn't find that genre that they enjoyed. So they don't engage with the written word as frequently. You know, that's such a great point. Um, because so like from, from my end of the world, I'm, I'm dealing with, uh, 
creative people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of which you are. But uh, I'm, I, I've spent over a decade teaching artists. And when you spend a lot of time with especially visual artists and you're just like, how did you even think of that? And sometimes it just comes organically. Like there is this innate talent that they don't, most artists don't even necessarily consider like, oh, maybe there's just something with my lived experience that, you know, made me do this thing. Sometimes it's a happy accident and whatever, but you know, there is this, this sense of, internal or innate uh talent and uh to your point like the with language like that's very functional that's something you have to learn it's not something you necessarily just kind of experience um which is just kind of an interesting sort of relationship so i'm used to saying like oh well they're just kind of a by default just a naturally good writer but to your point, like those people are also reading a lot of books uh, yeah. or not well, just books, but they're just reading. Yeah. 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 When I was in high school, I wanted to be a writer. Right. So I was like mm. trying to write novels. And I remember the first time I tried to write. Well, I mean, there were many first tries. Right. I'm writing a novel. But um, the first time I really kind of did it and then thought, OK, now I'm going to research what uh, where I should send this and mm. discovering, well, I have about 20,000 words. <laughs> and a novel is actually about 80,000 to at the most 130,000 by general mm. publishing standards. And that changes by genre. But this kind of realization of like, oh, now I have to figure out how to write a story that's this long. And so then I wrote mm. another one and it was 80,000 words, but <laughs> it was definitely a stretch of kind of like, well, now I'm going to add another episode um, to get to my 80,000 words. And it wasn't necessarily a cohesive story or a novel in the way that you would expect today maybe it was right. more akin to like tom jones just throw another episode in there and send it to right. the printer and make some <laughs> money and uh so then i think on like the third one i finally started getting like the actual shape of a novel mm -hmm. um but i think that there is that there's it's a learning process right because first you have to realize that there are these arbitrary standards like who decided 80 to 100,000 words was what a novel was. Well, right. Somebody. Um, and now you have to write in that. <laughs> so. Focus groups. Focus groups. They put people <laughs> in a room, made them read a book and said, how much is too much? Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> or all what, of the... when is it too expensive? Right. Yeah. What is it too? Yeah. How, what's the price point? How much is the cost for production and manufacturing and all that? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny how things like that, which, seem arbitrary can actually be quantified scientifically um mm -hmm. which kind of you know takes the fun out of it um you but know, then i think when you have those confines it can actually make it better in some ways because absolutely given absolute freedom i find i don't produce much of value <laughs> but once i have limits it's like i just kind of fill those in a way that always surprises me so you know it reminds me of uh of uh, michael shabon uh, I think it was Michael Shabon book, uh, Wonder Boys, where the, mm -hmm. the, the, this professor in Pittsburgh, coincidentally, uh, he just takes off all, he basically writes this gigantic book, like it's his masterpiece, and it's terrible. <laughs> it's just absolutely god-awful, because he took, they took away all the limits, he just started writing, it just kept going, 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 going. For like 20 years and then uh some student comes along and writes something very small but it's like so profound and 
uh, of such high quality. It just hijinks ensue, nevertheless. <laughs> but um, okay, so I want to switch. Michael Chabon actually has a really good uh, essay collection. I forget what it's he called. Does. But there's one essay yeah. called "Trickster in a Suit of Lights." I make my students read that one at the end of the semester to think about breaking out of the confines of genre. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, so there's some preface for it <laughs> uh, in, in his authorship history there. Um, okay, so uh, switching gears, I want to talk about like uh, what you're doing now with your research. So um, you're an academic researcher, you're unaffiliated with any universities, you're just doing your own thing. Um, but you're following like the the research guidelines that you know you were trained on that I was trained on So you don't have an IRB necessarily, but you follow those protocols um, Yeah, well, we don't do IRB anyway in my field. So oh you don't oh, oh well, yeah. not that you would have to right? Yeah um, No human testing with respect. To yeah, that. but uh, nevertheless you're you're doing you're doing research and um, you're looking to expand on that and really put it into um, more of a concentrated practice. What are your What are your goals here? Yeah. Um, so right now, I am working on writing journal articles. I've had, I guess, one peer-reviewed article come out, and I want to continue to kind of build on that research, speaking to both an interdisciplinary audience as well as to a um, literature studies audience, but obviously when you write peer review articles, those are primarily for colleagues, academics. Um, mm. So something that I've been doing lately because I think um, and people are really interested actually in what academics do, but it's not particularly accessible. So I started an Instagram account to kind of play around with that and make my research more accessible to people. I wanted to try to figure out how to speak to a general audience um yeah what's uh what's your instagram handle it is called the metropolitanist at the metropolitanist okay uh i'm gonna share my screen here so okay we can take a look at it as soon as my uh, computer kicks over. So you're, you've yes. chosen Instagram as your preferred um, platform. Uh, platform for distributing your, your research. And uh, why didn't you look at Twitter or, or Facebook? Um, so I made a Twitter and an Instagram. Well, I don't really like Facebook. I, my audience there is very personal, I think. And it's just sort of like random people that I've collected over the years that I don't really see as being an audience necessarily. Um, and also because Facebook is set up really, you know, you need to be mutually friends with people and there is a limit on how many, um, friends you can have. So I think it's, as a medium, it doesn't necessarily make sense for what I was trying to do. Twitter and Instagram, I got started on both at the same time, but I ended okay. up when I was an, a master's student, I was going to a an academic conference actually, and I thought I better create these things so that <laughs> <laughs> I can live tweet from conferences, which I did not do, but it got me started. And um, I ended up using Instagram a lot more, I think because just at the stage that I was at and my career, there's really no reason to have a strong presence on Twitter. Um, and everybody I knew created Instagrams. Uh, so this was okay. just our way of communicating with each other. And so I, for years, I had kind of experience just using that platform kind of casually. 
And then I was finding that I was spending more and more time on there engaging with a lot of different genres of kind of Instagram, particularly um, fountain pen, <laughs> fountain pens, bookstagram. Yeah. And uh, yeah, notestagram were all really interesting to me. So I thought, well, I don't want to spend so much time consuming this. I'd like to start trying to figure out where my work fits into this and maybe create mm. something. And I thought, Urban literary studies has the potential to be such a visual field um, because cities are just an object of photographic representation so much. So I decided right. this is it. I have a larger amount of space to write about what I want to write about, but it's not unlimited. So I can't spend too much time the way a blog post might mm -hmm. sort of, I, I can spend hours on a blog post, which is terrible. And I don't <laughs> have the time to do that. <laughs> is most of that editing? <laughs> no, most of it. No? Well, okay. Yeah, I guess because it's kind of like writing and editing at the same time, right? And three hours later, you're like, what have I done? I should have written a journal article. <laughs> I should have been working on that. And instead, I was looking up how do I explain Eric Auerbach to a general audience? Mm -hmm. And so I find it's, it's very similar to writing a journal article, except then, you know, you're writing it a lot faster, you don't have a peer review process. And but there's still a certain standard that has to be met and it just gets out yeah. of control very quickly. So having a word limit was important to me. Um, and so that's where I chose Instagram. So your Instagram handle is at uh, Metropolitanist? The Metropolitanist. The, okay. Yeah. Well, I just chose an interesting profile to follow. There we go. <laughs> All right. Whoops. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fine. I'm going to, I'm going to share this. Uh, bear okay. with me. Uh, let's see here. All yeah, right, so, so we're looking at your Instagram at the Metropolitanist, um, yeah. and you've got uh, some nicely crafted, composed images here. Are there any that kind of stick out to you that there's a good story behind, or just something that you know moved you or uh, made it made an impression? Um, well, so there are three kind of genres that I tend to write in on here, and you can see that I'm rotating them pretty regularly. So on the right. Uh, now on the left-hand column is all urban imagery, and then okay. um, and then kind of interspersed on the other two with notes and books. And so I try to draw an audience primarily from Bookstagram and Notestagram and then fountain pens, um, and then talk about literature from at the same time with like urban images. And let's see if we go. Let me look at line here. Um, one that I was particularly pleased with recently is this one that's of the Journal of Italian Cinema and Media Studies. Okay. Um, just saw that one. Yeah, so I don't work on that at all, but I was at NEMLA uh, recently and I was looking around for different ways to represent um, academic conferencing to my audience so mm -hmm. that I would have images to go along with writing about that. And then COVID came along and just completely disrupted my <laughs> plans for yeah. recounting how the conference went. Um, but basically what this image is, is um, trying to give people a visual representation of conference materials that's still cohesive with my uh, overall look of my page. Mm -hmm. And then tell them a little bit about some of the let's see I think for this one I was talking about um the work publishing workshops that I was in so I have a pretty 
large unintentionally cultivated following of uh, graduate students <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and aspiring graduate students. So I thought they'd probably be interested in hearing about how the publishing workshop went. Um, and this was the, the Journal of Italian Cinema and Media Studies was the example that the uh, workshop runners at Intellect gave us to look at to see sort of what they do um, and have something to hold on to. So for the first time, I guess, as an Instagrammer, I actually walked up to someone and asked, can I have this? <laughs> <laughs> and they agreed. So that was, uh, that's one image. Cool. Um, so I will, I'll make that link available in the, in the show notes. Um, I, mm -hmm. Just I, I, one last question before, uh, actually two before we go. Uh, what advice do you have for students really of any, any major discipline uh, or more specifically, you know, you can handle it from a few different ways. Those that want to become uh, better writers and researchers, uh, they're all graduating from a bachelor's program now. So, you know, when they enter the economy, depending on the state of it, after this is over, there might not be some jobs available or they genuinely want to go to grad school. Uh, what, what advice do you have for folks that are interested in progressing their academic careers into masters and potentially PhD? Mm. Um, I mean, first, I think it's really, it's a really valuable experience, you know, regardless of if I end up finding one of those much desired tenure track positions. I don't think that, mm. uh, I know a lot of people who I think regret having gone through the PhD, um, or I've met a lot of academics who say, you know, be careful, you don't want to get stuck on this career track. Um, mm. And I would say, I don't regret it at all. I think it was a great, you know, eight year run that I've had so far thinking about ideas that were really interesting to me. And I think I'll be able to take that into any career. So I think approach it as like an opportunity to have some protected time to explore a subject that you're really interested in and then be flexible in the way that you think about how you want to move forward in your career from there. Don't um, get trapped in that idea that, you know, well now, now I have this degree, I have to find a job where that degree is a requirement. <laughs> Um, which I find is a very common, actually, right. mindset that people get. And as far as going to graduate school, I think in terms of the application process, really look for a program that um, seems well-suited to what you're interested in studying. Like, I don't think I would have been happy, say, at an Ivy League, trying to cram as much Latin or <laughs> ancient Greek sure. in my head as I possibly could Yeah. Uh, in a five-year span. That wouldn't have been a good fit for me. Um, so finding that good fit and then, but alternatively going to like a film study, a comparative literature program that was focused on film studies also wouldn't have been a great fit for me because I don't study film or really visual right. mediums at all. So yeah, departments vary enormously from place to place. Be really like, be very picky about which ones you mm -hmm. choose to apply to and think of that as a choice that you're making. Um, and then from there, really think about how you want to frame yourself. It's when you propose a project and like a personal statement, it's not that you're going to be stuck with that project. I've changed my projects every time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Never done the project I told them I was going to do. But what a committee wants to see when they're picking their graduate students is whether you can imagine a cohesive project. Mm -hmm. So imagine yeah. that project and propose it. 
You know, that's such a great point because, so when I started my PhD, um, I went through the orientations in the first few classes and they said like, you don't have to settle on your dissertation topic anytime soon. Like you're, you're going to have like a good year to really figure that out. Right. And then next, the, the following week, our assignment was write your dissertation topic. And I'm just like, I've been here a week. <laughs> I don't even know. Like I, I have ideas, but uh, what, how, how, what, why? Yeah. So, you know, finding the, uh, the right instructor, the right program, the right university, the right city, all of those things I feel are very, very important, especially when you want to go through the PhD track. Um, because it is your life. Everything about it is is your life. And um, you're really living it. And you're immersed and, and dedicated. And, um, and it's a financial sacrifice. I guess it's something it is, people need to be aware of. It's, you will unless, not be compensated financially. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless you get like a free ride or something, which is incredibly rare. It is a massive Well, and even at that, usually they keep you on a pretty like tight, uh, oh, yeah. financial margin. So it's like, I think when I was at Clemson, I mean, I had a fully funded PhD or master's degree, um, but we were getting paid like $14,000 a year, which you can make work in Clemson, South Carolina, but it's, sure, you know, not, not the thrill of anyone's life, I think, to have a bachelor's right. degree and be working for that salary. Oh, no, of course. Yeah. And so, you know, on that note, like it, I, I'll use the, the basically work while you PhD, that that's a model that I think is going to come out of the, the COVID crisis uh, a bit more um, in practice. Same with master's degrees, uh, taking a, it's not like you have to quit school to do these things. Like now there's paths where you can make money and uh, learn at the same time. And it's still just as demanding and the rigor is nuts, but yeah. you know, you can come out of that on the other side, pretty, pretty successful. And even cultivate thinking about cultivating skills that you want to take into a future career is you're like finding those side jobs as well. Like for me doing the Instagram was a good opportunity just to um, be able to add to my resume that I know how to like work with social media. So, yeah. you know, take, you have five years in a PhD program, take that time to just cultivate some daily practice that engages with the field you want to go into. So, yep. and that could be, you know, the jobs that you pursue. But then again, you know, there are a lot of people who work as like bartenders while they're doing their degrees as well, just because it offers a lot of freedom. So, yeah. <laughs> and the release from the stress maybe because <laughs> it's very physical yeah. and, and active. So uh, we're going to go ahead and have to stop, but if students are interested in, in connecting with you, learning more about you and what you're doing um, with your research, how can, how can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at, at the metropolitanist. <laughs> um, and then you can find my website at maisonmetropolitanist.com, which is its own interesting story about how that developed. And a marketing friend of mine walked me took me through my paces to figure out what my kind of like angle or brand was going to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we settled on something pretty cohesive. So that's where you can find me. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for, for chatting with us and stay safe up there in New York city and, uh, <laughs> we'll check in with you soon. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, All stay right. safe everyone else too. That's right. Stay safe out there.
<laughs> yeah.